my great pleasure to introduce uh, Reg Turnhill, who uh, for many years was the aviation and space correspondent of the BBC, had many uh, encounters with cosmonauts and astronauts over the years, and he's going to give us his thoughts on Gagarin and his legacy now. Thank you, Reg. Well, after um, Nick's excellent presentation, it does cover a lot of what I was going to say. So you'll be relieved to know uh, that I can uh, I can reduce what I was going to say a good deal, uh, because I'm sure you're looking forward to your lunch. Um, but I did want to start uh, with a postscript uh, that with which I was intended to attend. In, intended to end and that was uh, a bit uh, irrelevant except that it's become so topical because 42 years ago uh, on the day that Neil Armstrong stepped on the moon Werner von Braun handed me a copy of his master plan for the future in space and it included of course not only human bases on the moon and Mars by the 1980s, but it included the assembly in geosynchronous orbit of large solar arrays. And this was his, this was his priority. Uh, large solar arrays, uh, in geosynchronous orbit capable of collecting and beaming back to Earth unlimited supplies of cheap power cheap solar power, thus, he said, uh, relieving us of our um, crazy independence on oil and nuclear power. Too expensive, they said. And uh, so if he'd had his way, there would have been a pilot solar collecting uh, system uh, 40 years ago. Well, back to the beginning now. And as I say, I'll cut a good deal, uh, because I don't want to repeat it. Uh, but um, this is a short film uh, showing how man's spaceflight began for me 50 years ago. If we could just run that. That was me at the end, you saw briefly. Um, and uh, I didn't know it existed until a couple of weeks ago. And uh, when I was able to buy that clip from Pathé News for £30. Well, uh, as I say, I'm going to uh, sh short-circuit this a good deal. Uh, but um, what happened then uh, was that uh, after I got in with a great deal of difficulty and um, enjoying this happy atmosphere today... Um, it's looking back, it's extraordinary how unhappy the atmosphere was in those days of the Cold War. Uh, and uh, my experience uh, of that press conference, when after 90 minutes of those speeches, we came to the questions, uh, my questions among them, uh, was what we called as journalists the idiot treatment. And I will give you a, an example uh, of the sort of questions and answers we endured um, I still have if you could uh, if you could go to still number five 
I still have my script of that occasion. Uh, when I and I did my best to be kind to the occasion in that, because it wasn't the only story around. Remember, um, within two days, uh, this was almost the Gagarin flight was almost forgotten because by. Uh, April 17, two days later, Cuba had defeated an, inv- an American invasion, uh, now remembered as the Bay of Pigs. Um, but um, the sort of questions and answers we had, uh, I can demonstrate. Uh, the first thing was, as uh, Nick recalled uh, about the re-entry, and of course the one thing the West was desperate to know was how advanced uh, was the spacecraft uh, when it landed. And so uh, one of the first things we asked Gagarin uh, was um, uh, whether he ejected or remained in the spacecraft during the landing. And um, academician Blaganrovov, who was sitting beside him, I think he was a, a politician rather than a spaceman, uh, was uh, uh, given the job of handling the press conference, pulled Yuri, pulled Yuri down and whispered in his ear. And um, the answer to that was the pilot was in the cabin, the landing proceeded successfully and demonstrated the success of the systems. Next question. Well, at least that's what the translator, a man named Boris Politsky, said Gagarin, said, uh, I was to have many unsatisfactory dealings with Mr. Politsky in later years. Um, it was, in fact, the beginning of ten years of evasions and even, I'm afraid, downright lies, because not until 1971 was Yuri allowed to admit that he'd actually been ejected, as Nick described, still sitting in his seat at a height of 7,000 metres above the Volga River, over which he'd previously done 30 practice parachute jumps. So <clears throat> I think he uh, he felt fairly comfortable once his parachute had opened. The Soviet leaders thought there was much prestige to be gained by claiming the flight as an international aeronautical record because um, for that the pilot had to take off and land inside the vehicle. It seems seems also important, unimportant now. Izvestia, in fact, started the fiction within hours by reporting he stepped out of the spaceship wearing a sky-blue coloured flying suit and a pilot's head fest. Well, on weightlessness, weightlessness, Yuri told us he was convinced the strange condition won't interfere with the future spaceman's ability to work, uh, nor with his bodily functions on longer trips. Uh, Rather sadly, he added, I want to do a lot more. I want to do a lot more. I want to go to Mars and Venus and do some real flying. And he dropped us a hint that spaceships uh, were being constructed for trips to the moon. But then came some more examples of the idiot treatment, uh, which had the audience rocking with laughter, and journalists like me pretty frustrated. Um, Question, 
When were you told you were to make the first flight? I was told in good time I was the first cosmonaut. How many cosmonauts are there? I believe there are more than enough to undertake important flights. When will the next space flight take place? I think our scientists and cosmonauts will undertake the next flight when it's necessary. And then my question again. I can go and watch America's launches. When I when can I go to Baikonur to watch yours? We politely called it Baikonur, though of course we knew it was Tyratum. Uh, but this brought a long and passionate answer in Russian, not from Gagarin, but from uh, Blagonrovov in the chair. And there were nurses. Uh, I cut the stuff about getting into the conference, but I was sitting in the middle of a row of nurses or hospital orderlies, perhaps, uh, because that was the only seat I could find. Uh, and uh, while these, this passionate reply was being made in Russian. The nurses were bouncing up and down in their seats and bumping against me on each side. I was in in the middle of the row, uh, roaring their applause and turning to laugh derisively in my face. I didn't hear much of the translation, uh, but I gathered it was to the effect that they had no intention of letting the wicked Westerners spy on their rockets which were so far ahead. Uh, and it was to be another six years before we did see their Soviet launcher. Could we have still six, please? Um, that's it. M- my assistant, who also happened to be my wife, took this photo when it was at last flown in a giant transporter to, to the 1967 uh, Paris Air Show. It was it was a sensation, of course. Uh, and the most astonishing thing about that picture, it still astonishes me, uh, that 50 years later, it doesn't look all that different. Well, three weeks after Yuri's flight, I was at Cape Canaveral in Florida to cover America's first flight, a modest 15 minutes up and down ballistic trajectory not even taking him into orbit, um, whereas Yuri's spacecraft had weighed five tons, um, Alan Shepard's was just one ton, and I'm afraid we rather unkindly reported that he didn't much, didn't so much as get into it as put it on. <laughs> it was the best uh, that the Redstone rocket could do, developed by Werner von Braun from his V2 rockets. Uh, as I indicated, I got to know him very well, uh, and um, uh, he, he proved very useful. Finally, on uh, May the 5th, if we could have still number 8, Shepard's launch, uh, on May the 8th, 23 days after Yuri's flight, Alan Shepard soared up to a height of 116 miles and splashed down in the Atlantic a quarter of an hour later, a mere 302 miles away. And then, of course, Alan Shepard dropped out of the news until ten years later, uh, when he commanded the third moon landing, Apollo 14, and got NASA into trouble by playing golf on the moon. Uh, But uh, Yuri 
went on stealing the limelight, traveling the world, publicizing the Soviet's technic technical supremacy. And by July 61, uh, it was England's turn. Yuri, uh, Yuri flew into London airport. He made a brief statement, refused to answer questions, uh, was given a hero's welcome by thousands and thousands of people here. He was given a Rolls Royce with a YG1 number plate, roared off with an escort of 22 motorcyclists uh, to meet Prime Minister, Prime Minister Macmillan and the royal family. And he also took a trip to Manchester. British governments have always refused to put a penny into manned spaceflight, but they cash in on it whenever there's a chance. <laughs> the British Interplanetary Society wanted to present Yuri with their top medal and were very upset when they told he was very busy and would they mind putting it in the post. <laughs> I was, because then as now, I was uh, one of the few people lucky enough uh, still to be here, uh, who met both Gagarin and Shepard. I had, of course, a unique, a unique chance to compare them uh, and the different Soviet-American approaches uh, in selecting their spacemen. Uh, by April 59, NASA had identified 110 test pilots uh, and whittled them down to seven highly experienced, very competitive uh, superb men and they of course were to play an active part in developing the spacecraft and insisted on being able to control them. Uh, Sergei Korolev on the other hand able to study NASA's open program took a very different view. He actively did not want test pilots or even engineers. He wanted young men willing to take risks and orders. And after those seven rehearsals with dogs that Nick described, he was doubtful about humans uh, being able to behave well in super, in zero gravity. So, uh, pla plans for an initial one day flight were dropped because some of the dogs vomited after a few orbits. Uh, and at first, he even considered racing drivers as being suitable, but finally trawled through 3,000 Air Force pilots and selected 20. And incidentally, they weren't volunteers. Uh, they were summoned, many of them not even knowing why. Well, of course, we didn't know, uh, know much of this until long after. And... Um, Rumours and reports that several cosmonauts had been killed in failed launch attempts, uh, which uh, people like me were covering and desperately trying to sort out, uh, arose out of vague leaks about an enormous explosion on a launch pad of a ballistic missile the October uh, before Gagarin's launch. That had killed 130 scientists and technicians, including Marshal Nedelin, CNC of Strategic Missile Forces. And only 19 days before Gagarin's flight, uh, the youngest and perhaps most brilliant of 
of Korolev's cosmonaut Valentin Bondarenko, aged 23, died horribly uh, in an oxygen fire during a ground rehearsal, uh, just as the Apollo 1 crew were to die six years later. Proposals to bring the uh, uh, Alan Shepard and um, Gagarin together at the Paris 1967 air show, which we'd all look forward to, were unfortunately frustrated by political bickerings. And as far as I know, they never met. Uh, Yuri's death seven years later uh, in an air crash uh, came as a Diana-like shock, shock to the nation, but meant that their iconic hero could always be portrayed as young, which somehow has been uh, very impressive, I think. Shepard, the first astronaut smart enough to make himself a millionaire, uh, died of cancer in 1988, in 1998, um, at the age of 77. I just wanted to tell you a bit more about how it was, um, uh, what it was like, the, tr the comparison going from the harsh conditions at Moscow when we was, when one was followed around and pushed around. And then when I went to, uh, uh, when I went across to the sunshine of Florida, and there I stayed at the Holiday Inn, uh, and um, having got there in good time, I found myself sharing the swimming pool uh, with Alan Shepard and Gus Grissom and John Glenn. Uh, it's hard to believe it nowadays, but there are no camera crews. Television news had hardly started, um, and... Um, I went in to have breakfast and I shared a table with Alan Shepard. At that time, uh, he knew he'd been selected as the first astronaut, but we weren't told which of the three it was to be until the day of the first launch attempt. Well, it all went on from there. Um, I, I spent my life, the next 20 years, commuting between... A broadcasting house and television centre, uh, and uh, Cape Canaveral and Houston. Incidentally, I only went once more to Moscow. Uh, it was a complete waste of time uh, because the facilities and the atmosphere uh, were so bad that I could find out much more uh, of what was doing by monitoring Moscow radio. Moscow Radio used to give us surprisingly straightforward details uh, once we got the orbit and the inclination. It wasn't hard to guess whether it would be a manned space flight or not. Uh, and a vital thing uh, that we always knew, relied on was that we knew Soviet scientists, despite the political pressures, never told lies. Uh, and so one of the things uh, we could, one of the things that was so helpful to me, especially when the BBC used to ring me up in the middle of the night, uh, and I used to get them to, uh, with, with difficulty, I'd get the sub to read the exact words 
of the Moscow announcement, I was able to conclude a lot from what was not said rather than what was said. Well, I've cut my uh, piece a good deal, uh, but um, I think, uh, it, uh, as you heard earlier, from we had the privilege of uh, the Soviet Union's 100th cosmonaut in space. It's it's um, interesting to me, humbling to me, to realize that in the 50 years since I was at Moscow, 500 humans have been in space. And um, although, uh, although we never got to Mars, uh, never had bases on the moon, uh, which uh, Werner von Braun hoped would be there by 1984, on the day uh, Armstrong landed on the moon, I predicted that the first man on Mars would be there in 19, uh, 1984. And... Uh, I was about a hundred years out in that prediction. Um, uh, but nevertheless, there have been plenty of space stories for me to cover in the last 50 years. Thank you very much. I'll uh, ask... Uh Pat Norris to open up the next part of the session, which is a, an open panel discussion on uh, Gagarin's legacy. So, uh, gentlemen, you've seen several times already today. Pat Norris, I'll pass over to you now, Pat. Thank you very much, John. So, could I ask the, the, the panel members to join me here, please? We've introduced briefly uh, the panelists you, you see before you. Starting at this end, I have Mr. Jerry Webb, who's the Managing Director of Commercial Space Technologies, heard CST mentioned several times during the day, and Mr. Webb is one of Britain's leading experts on uh, Russian space activities and programs. Next to him is uh, Douglas Barry, who has been a well-known figure in the aviation and space uh, community over the many years and is now a senior re researcher at the International Institute of Strategic Studies. So we very much welcome that perspective being brought to today's topic. Next to Douglas is Reg Turnell, whom you, we had a, a really uh, exciting and interesting talk from this morning, uh, aviation and space correspondent at the BBC for many years. And then finally, on the extreme left, uh, welcome uh, to Dr. Jeremy Curtis, who's uh, with the UK Space Agency, Head of Education, is one of his many roles there. Uh, and uh, so we're looking forward to hearing a UK Space Agency perspective on the subject today. So we have roving microphones. If you uh, have a question to ask, please put your hand up. So it's turned on. Um, I'm Ian Jones from Goonhilly uh, Station Limited. Uh, I, I was very interested... I can't remember who it was this morning who was talking about the the Apollo mission to the moon and the, the space race and whether this, this question as whether travelling to the moon was was perhaps something which happened too early uh, and because because the because NASA achieved that goal of travelling to the moon um, that then uh, there was a question of what to do next and in the current climate now where there's a, an increase uh, in the number of um, 
commercial organizations going into space. I'd be interested in the panel's view as to what the, the best approach uh, for the international community is now for expansion of, of traveling into space and, 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 and developing these, this capacity in, in space. Is it the traditional ways? Is, is it commercial activities? How, which is the way that we can maximize this? Go on, Rich. You go first. Go on, Rich. You go first. <laughs> I find that a, a difficult question. Um, I mean, um, if, if it's a question of should it be commercial or national, uh, if that is the point, uh, certainly um, it's, it's a healthy development, I suppose, uh, that uh, America in particular has... Uh, trying to abandon NASA and turn it over to commercial activities, uh, which people like Jerry Webb are good at, uh, but um, it's, uh, as far as I'm concerned, uh, the present situation is that uh, we've lost our way in space, which really means, of course, America has lost its way, uh, but um, I think uh, one of the if I could diverge a little bit, one of the things that uh, has interested me today is really the divergence uh, between the medical approach uh, to space and the actuality of it. Our medical experts still go on about uh, the dangers of uh, muscle, muscle loss and bone density, uh, and uh, worry about the relationships uh, between long-duration spacemen as to whether they'll get on well. Uh, and it's quite unrelated to reality. We hear people like Oleg, Kotov, and many other astronauts who've come back fit and well despite all these disastrous possible physical uh, deformities they're likely to have suffered. They're fit and well and happy, uh, and uh, there's very little, a uh, very little um, indication that they haven't got w on well together at all. All this stuff about, forgive me, the lady who mentioned it, all this stuff about uh, people's territorial uh, worries when they're in space. In fact, Ten years after ten years in the space station, uh, the long-duration crews get on very well indeed. Um, and uh, I don't think we've anything to worry about in hu human long-duration flights uh, to Mars. Um, in the days of Darwin, people were away for years, so they were in the last war. They were separated. And... Um, uh, people people survive these things very well. And um, now what impresses me, I wouldn't mind going on a long-duration flight now because I could take my Kindle well, with me and <laughs> read all the classics that I haven't had time to read. Well, uh, I'm sorry, that's, that's not a very direct answer. <laughs> Okay, sure. Do you like Do you to yeah. uh, um, I mean, you, you raised yeah. the point about did, 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 did the moon 
happened yeah. too early. I think you've really just got to look at that in the context of superpower rivalry. I mean, they got there as quickly as they could um, because there was, a, there was a race on. A ballistic missile race. Yeah. Somebody mentioned uh, Britain was a victim of the first space weapons, and I was one of those victims. I was 41, uh, 40, born in 41. I remember my first memory being hit for playing in the broken glass when a V2 broke in our uh, wind, you know, going off in the distance, thank goodness, broke in our windows. And uh, I'm also one of those unashamed down there fanatics, along with Alan Bond, as Mark mentioned. You know, he can speak Saturnian, though, I can't. And um, reading that in the kind of strange, you've never had it so good atmosphere, you know, in my teenage years, in the 50s, I genuinely believed I'd be skiing on Mars by about 1980, you know, genuinely doing that. And I don't think those dreams were actually unrealistic, but it just depends on what schedule you're on, whether you're on a political schedule or whether you're on a, uh, you know, a, a commercial schedule. Because, of course, the only way is quite right uh, that it could have been done that quickly would have been for political expediency. Uh, and if the Communism had been a bit more efficient and Russia had had more money and the challenge might have gone on to, you know, Mars after the moon or so on. But uh, it didn't happen like that. And in fact, we're here to talk about Gagarin's legacy. And Gagarin's legacy actually li lies through institutes like the one that Silverillion works for, the IBMP. In fact... Somebody put up a picture of a guy holding up two dogs. I can't remember who that was. But a guy who was holding up two dogs was uh, Oleg Karamishan Oleg Gazenko, the uh, past director, the, the man who prepared Gagarin for his flight. We shouldn't forget the, the, the med medical side back to the beginning. And um, I think uh, his legacy goes through all of the following flights and possibly... There's been a hiatus, because we're not on a political schedule, we're on a practical schedule. And what do you know, the Russians have scored the next big first, which is the first space tourism, I think. And I think that the space tourism is the next step, followed by, you know, uh, space hotels. So somebody put up a picture of the Bigelow um, uh, space station experimenting there, being launched on Dnipas as well, in Russia. Uh, so... I think after a hiatus of 50 years, or no, 40 years at least, we're somehow getting back on schedule. And lo and behold, right there, suddenly Skylon, the thing we need to do it commercially. So I, after a long period of uh, not losing hope, but kind of being a little bit in a trance, suddenly we're, I'm feeling dynamic again. I hope we all are. <laughs> Jeremy. Thank you. Um, well, I can't claim to have a memory quite as long as that. Um, when Gagarin flew, I was ten weeks away from being born. So I'm sure influenced um, my upbringing and my formation, should we say. Um, however, what I would say is that um, in response to the question about whether going to the moon was done too fast, too soon and so on, Clearly, the world is a different place now, and one might hope that the technologies we've developed would have meant that we could do things faster and quicker, and it never seems to have happened. It seems to be more expensive and slower, But I suspect part of the reason for that is that physics hasn't changed. It still takes as much energy to get into orbit as it ever did. 
And I doubt there's anything much any of us in this room could do about that. But of course, there are things we can do to make it easier to get into orbit, and uh, we're delighted that things are moving at last in that direction. Um, so, in, in view of the question about uh, what is the way forward, um, I'll just mention that I have a different hat to wear in addition to the education one that Pat hint, hinted at. Um, and this is to do with space exploration. Um, we uh, we have an international um, organisation called the International Space Exploration Coordination Group, which consists of members from, I think, all of the space agencies and governments who are involved in space exploration um, and who have aspirations one day maybe to travel to places um, within at least the nearest parts of the solar system. Um, that's for humans to travel there, not just for robotic exploration. So we're talking together, and I, for my money, I think the, the way forward is for us to collaborate. Um, gone are the days when these things have to be done by competition. It's clearly um, too expensive uh, if we're going to send people to Mars for us to do that. So the important thing, I think, is for us to get collaboration between all the different countries who are interested and to agree common goals. And that's what we're trying to do at the moment. We're working on something called the Global Exploration Roadmap. It sounds very bureaucratic, and I'm afraid it does take a long time to thrash these things out. But it is actually a coherent plan to address the barriers that will prevent us from getting to Mars, the technologies that will be needed in order to do that, and to map out the interests of the different nations um, in solving those problems so that one day we can do it together, and to avoid the sorts of problems that will happen if we don't coordinate it. You can imagine one day several different nations landing on the moon and not being able to help each other out in case of problems because somebody's forgotten to check that they're all on the same um, voltage for their power supplies or the same flange diameter for the oxygen supply and all of the other um, specific technical details that need to be sorted out as well as um, the bureaucratic ones. So there are moves afoot. We are doing the best we can. It's a slow business and we have to bring all of the nations together um, to support it for us to move forward. So that's the way I think we should be progressing. Thank you, Jeremy. Uh, my own view about the, the questioner's point is that as we were told this morning that competition was the underpinning of the first space race, which was epitomized by Yuri Gagarin's flight. Uh, there is indeed some evidence of a trend towards commercialization of space, but I would point out that in Asia we have a, almost a rerun of the space race, perhaps not quite as competitive, but still an element of competition in it, with the participants in this case being China and India. And they are showing signs of, of creating a somewhat similar sequence of events that uh, Russia and the United, Soviet Union and the U.S. went through in the 60s. So I don't think it's a totally commercial picture for the future. Uh, in, in both China and India, the, it's the public sector which is underpinning the, that particular part of today's trend. So, let's, let's have another one. My name is Adrian Vandermeer. I'd like to ask uh, two questions. One is maybe a journalistic one and an obvious one. Nevertheless, I think it's uh, worthwhile to pose the question. Is it true, do you agree, that the Russian authorities, in fact, were irresponsible in bringing Gagarin into space, taking the safety issues and unresolved questions um, that were still outstanding at that time, and basically that the only driver was the competition, as you said, 
and that uh, in a way uh, Gagarin was a lucky fellow uh, and that he survived um, the flight um, that basically thanks to, to luck. That's my first question. My second question relates to space debris, talking about the legacy. We talk here about the legacy, 50 years on. Um, I was very impressed by one of the persons this morning who introduced the subject, saying that uh, basically parts around space are overcrowded and that we need to do urgently something about space debris. Well, I have, uh, we as organization have tried to um, uh, solve this issue, at least uh, facilitate um, uh, a discussion among the main parties. Um, and basically, uh, so far, uh, it's a standstill. There's a, actually a lack of uh, political will, in my opinion. But also the issue is covered by some secrecy, because, of course, some of the satellites, we do not want to know what is it all about. Uh, does the panel uh, see a, this problem of space debris. Uh, B, uh, what uh, sees the panel as a possible way forward in this respect? Or, a um, bit cynical for my part, do we have to wait a further catastrophe before uh, finally uh, heads are being beaten and put <coughs> together and that solutions are being found? Thank you. Thank you. Two very good questions. Let's let Red start again. Thank you very much, Red. Um, well, I'd like to pick up on the first question. Were the Russians irresponsible or did they take excessive risks in launching Gagarin? Uh, one of the things that impressed me enormously about, uh, we, we used to call them Soviets in those days, was uh, not their irresponsibility. We all tended uh, to sneer at the Russians at the time, the Soviets, think they were taking risks. But one of the points I was unable to make this morning was that, to my astonishment, the Russians uh, took much more care, not more, they took at least as much care of their astronauts, uh, both in launching them and recovering them, as NASA. They spent just as much trouble uh, worrying about their health and benefits uh, as the Americans did. Uh, in fact, a, a small example of that is that they were so concerned about uh, the, the morale um, of the early, um, astro the early cosmonaut launches that in the case of Gagarin's launch, they actually told the wives of the astronauts uh, that the launch would take, day, take place four days later than it actually did, so that it, it all would all be over before the wives started worrying. That, to me, was <laughs> a very impressive um, when we all thought that they didn't care much if they lost a few astronauts, a few cosmonauts on the way. It just wasn't true. So I think um, I was very impressed at the responsibility, responsible attitude they took, uh, whether it was... That was politically the case. Uh, I'm not sure, but certainly in the case of Korolev, uh, he had a very paternal relationship towards the cosmonauts. I'll approach the, the first question. Um, I'm not sure that I can really deal with the second question. Um, from my own perspective, I applied 
a long time ago to join the Juno project, and uh, I found that I was quite astonished that um, a boss of mine at the time said to me, but why are you applying to be an astronaut? Surely this is a very dangerous thing. Um, aren't you worried about it? And I thought, this is coming from somebody who's worked most of their career in the space industry. Surely this must be the most exciting opportunity they could possibly um, be given. And of course there's dangers. There's dangers in a lot of things we do. And you compare the dangers with the benefits. And for me, I thought, well, this is a risk worth taking. Um, but the point for me is that so long as you know what the risks are and you're in a, in a position that you can make that judgment, then it seems to me absolutely fine. Now, I have to say, I don't know enough about the details of Gagarin's case to extend it to whether they made the right decision or not, or whether he was given enough information to make that decision. So I won't discuss that aspect of it. But I think there are times when you simply say, this is a risk I think I want to take, um, and you leave me to make that decision. As far as the de space debris question is concerned, as I say, I'm not an expert in that. Clearly, there is a problem, and uh, there are technical solutions that will cost a fortune to deal with. The main um, thing we have to remember is to make sure we don't create any more than there is already up there. Um, so from the um, agency perspective, that's where we focus our biggest efforts, is on international agreements to make sure that spacecraft are brought down um, eventually or moved up into orbits where they won't create a problem for future spacecraft. But there may be other issues which I'm not aware of. Sorry, go ahead. No. I, was only, I was only going to add that it is a concern of mine uh, that the space station is now o over 400 tonnes in mass uh, and uh, there's very little planning being done as to what is going to happen uh, when it deorbits. Uh, I've asked this question many times. I asked a top NASA man recently, and he replied, not my problem. So um, <laughs> it's not my problem either. I'll be long gone when uh, the space station re-enters, uh, but it's going to be a very exciting time. <laughs> uh, just with regard to your first, first point, um, I, I'd make the general statement, perhaps, that... Uh, in the 50s and 60s, the, the aerospace sector, to use your language, your, your language was littered with uh, lucky and, and unlucky fellows. Um, the Soviets took a kind of commensurate level of risk that the US also took. And, and in terms of um, on the, the air crews side, some of the some of the risks the Europeans took. So I don't think they did anything that was out of keeping with the period, actually. Yeah, just just add a couple of small notes and that is I, uh, responsibility I mean it can be divided what you're talking about legal, moral, political I guess moral but uh, it's alleviated a bit because I'm pretty uh, sure that uh, all of the potential cosmonauts with Gagarin knew the risks and in fact in those days the R7 wasn't didn't have such a reliability as it has now so they knew very well what they were doing and uh, in fact, I was there, and I, would, I was as fit as them. I was volunteered as well. I'm sure everybody here would have done. You wouldn't be here if you if you wouldn't have done. And uh, I think that probably, I think, as I understand it, Coral have worried about just as much about the dogs and everything else as an Englishman would have done. I <laughs> did <laughs> <laughs> Okay, well, I don't think I don't think you've got your answer on the debris, other than 
somewhat formal one, but maybe other people might want to jump in on that. Um, let's see here. I, I, I saw somebody at the back earlier on, yes. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. My name's Giles Huby from uh, Copernicus Technology. Um, despite the name of the company, we're actually an aerospace company. Well, I'd call it an aerospace company. Mark, you'd probably call us an aeronautics company. But um, my, my question was, was prompted by, uh, by Jeremy's title, of Head of Education. Um, one of the things that concerns me, uh, being in the aerospace and space business, and, and also through uh, my involvement in the, in the Royal Aeronautical Society, because there's a couple of us here today from the Highland branch, is, is we're not seeing an awful lot of youngsters coming into, uh, into these kind of industries uh, in the UK. It's great to, do, to see some of the students that are here today uh, come and hear what it's all about. Um, but in, in the UK, we've got you know, lots of initiatives about science, technology, engineering and maths. I've got kids in primary and secondary level schools and, and they're not seeing an awful lot of inspirational science, technology, engineering and maths that's floating their boat. They're not seeing uh, iconic uh, um, issues like this being presented, you know, milestones like 50 years of, uh, of manned space flight. And they're not necessarily hearing about iconic projects like the Bloodhound land speed uh, projects and things like that. So from a UK space perspective, what do we need to do to inspire uh, uh, and grow the next generation who are, going to, who are going to take this forward in the future. I guess we're looking to you, Jeremy, to kick off on this. Shall I start off by saying what we are doing, and then maybe my colleagues can say what they think we need to do as well. Mm. Um, the two main things I'd like to mention that we're doing at the moment are um, the European Space Education Resource Office. Now, it's a long-winded title, but just think of it as the Space Education Office, which we've set up in the last six months in order to try and address that, so that um, in schools, I mean, you've mentioned two different aspects there. One of them is what do we do in schools, and the other one is um, how do we get the message out through the media. And I think the media, we do the best we can, but we can't tell the media what to publish. So um, getting the story out, we do the best we can, but at the end of the day, if they don't find it interesting to mention a 50th anniversary of anything, then we do the best we can, but we can't make them. <coughs> Education, on the other hand, there are things we can do more specifically. And one of the problems we found was that teachers just don't know where to go to find um, properly um, annotated and designed resources for them to use in classes. There's masses and masses of material out there, and mostly they download it from NASA, because the NASA website is really good for doing that, and they therefore get American resources, and they don't get any impression that we do any space in this country. So we're trying to... Um, counter that by producing um, a one-stop shop where they can gather everything together that's within an existing resource. So they know about the National STEM Center. They're already used to using its electronic resources, and so it's formed as part of that. So it's already buying into an existing system that teachers are familiar with and are confident about. So that's making resources available. That's part of it. Having got the resources available, you then need to teach the teachers how to use it and to make sure they do. So um, in the East Midlands, there's a, uh, a centre called the Space Academy, which has been set up by the, by the National Space Centre, which is doing an excellent job of teaching teachers how to use these resources so they do actually um, feel confident. And getting confidence for teachers to use this stuff is a big part of the battle. It's especially a problem in primary schools where you don't have specialist science teachers usually, but it's even a problem in secondary schools. So at the moment, I've called it the East Midlands Space Academy, and this is where people in this room might be able to help. What we want to do is to roll it out nationally, but it needs to have support from industry and from other players who might um, wish to support it, because 
the way things are funded in this country, as you know, we've got a space agency, which is part of one department, an education department, which is different. Education is funded um, at the moment by giving money to schools, apparently. So if schools like it, they'll buy it. But what we're talking about is actually quite expensive to provide. So we need to try and make it a little bit cheaper, which is where anybody who's prepared to help sponsor this would be um, extremely welcome. We already have a few companies who are prepared to put money in and a few others besides. So we're, we're well on the way to making it work, but the government, I think, needs to see a bit more buy-in before we'll be able to unlock sufficient funds for the whole thing to work. So that is the resource which will teach teachers how to use the resources. So the two things go hand in hand, um, and I think we'll make a much better delivery. So there's a whole lot of other things we're doing, but the main um, message, I suppose, is that the UK Space Agency now has somebody whose job is to do education, which is some step forward, at least, as compared with a year and a bit ago when we didn't. So I'll stop there and he'll ask for other people's comments on what we should be doing rather than what we actually are doing. Well, um, I was interested in the speaker referring to the need for iconic figures. Uh, this is something uh, a few people like me who've been in it for a long time have been working on, working on for years, trying to persuade uh, successive British governments that it's absolutely essential that we should join every other major country in supporting quite modestly, human spaceflight. You saw in the films of Gagarin how um, his, his, his return um, inspired hundreds of thousands of people, wherever he went, came to applaud. They came to applaud him, but of course they were uh, really applauding Russia in having the courage to take this step forward. And we've been asking... Uh, what was uh, BNOC and now uh, I think is a step forward as the UK Space Agency and I accept that was a very positive statement you made but we still need uh, to produce some iconic figures. We have got at long, long last uh, a British astronaut in the European Space Agency Corps of Astronauts uh, who might get a chance to fly if he's very lucky in about four years he might get to the space station but every time Spain or Italy or Belgium or Holland has had a, a national astronaut in space the whole of their media has been uh, devoted to covering that event and this is what we failed to get across to the BNOC and are still failing to get across to the space agency. It sounds like a lot of money not producing a return, but in fact it's the one thing that will inspire our young people. Jerry? Uh, well, only that, uh, you know, I was inspired <coughs> by the potential of, uh, you know, adventures in space, all of which look possible, but uh, 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 after the decades of hiatus, I actually think that we are now beginning to get a virtuous circle, because when things happen, like Sputnik 1, I was I was in bed with flu when Sputnik 1, uh, you know, uh, and my mum came in and told me about it, I instantly knew what I was going to have to do, I went rushing off and joined the Patrick, uh, BI, British and French Society, and first meeting I met Patrick Moore, and I thought, you know, it's all going to go on like this, you know, um, and, uh, 
in fact, it's events like that. And Reggie is absolutely correct. You know that the investment in a, you know, a British pilot, uh, uh, astronaut, or cosmonaut would uh, would reap its way back in uh, kids being inspired. You know, to come into the space field. But actually, we're at start of a virtuous circle because. Uh, I don't know what's been pointed out before, I think it has in marginally, that uh, actually the space field is one of those fields which is expanding, even in a depression. And so that uh, big companies are looking at it as business sense to, you know, look at the space sector. And this, of course, has inspired governments. And we can't even uh, say this government, because even the previous government began to be inspired about space and began to support it. And that has resulted in quite genuine interest and support and a different atmosphere actually from an org- formation of organisations like UK Space Agency so I am again hopeful that uh, things will happen and that uh, uh, you know very soon there, there are projects as I say and I'm pretty sure if Skyline gets going in a year or two and, and starts getting a uh, a public image that will inspire people in its own right and there are many other projects from the people on this table which can do the same. So I think we're, we, we, it's quite right. It's events and the, the opportunities that inspire the, the youngsters and, uh, or, or people to enter the field. And I think that may start happening again. Maybe. Um, just to respond to Reg, um, we, uh, in order to get Tim to fly, um, we're certainly going to need some very uh, clear purpose for his flight and so the last day or so we've had a meeting on microgravity and this morning I was discussing with Tim exactly how we can get his involvement. We have agreement from ESA for him to spend some of his time working with us in the UK as an ambassador partly for careers and partly for microgravity. So this will be part of our aim to try and give him a purpose which will get him to the space station as soon as we can. Um, It's not enough but it's a start, um, so you know, keep the pressure on, and eventually people will listen. Okay, uh, just on a, a pragmatic level, I think given the increasing cost of uh, going to university, then there's a real opportunity here for industry to step up to the plate and provide greater sponsorship yes. in space sciences. I mean, it, uh, if you want to encourage young kids to get into the area, then that strikes me as, a, as an obvious path to go down. Let's have another question here at the front, please. Ward, fellow of the British Interplanetary Society. Uh, Jerry Webb and I are wearing matching BIS ties. Yep. Uh, I'm your space buff from way back. I wonder if Reg Turnell remembers he and I chatting beside the swimming pool in, t- in, in, a, I do in a, 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 a motel in Cocoa Beach in 1972 when I went to watch the, uh, the uh, launching of Apollo 16. I wondered what the panel wonder, uh, thought of uh, Professor De Groot's lecture. Uh, my impression about such people is that they uh, tend to tell us as if it were astounding revelations, things that we've known for decades, such as that Kennedy was no great space buff and that he really was only trying to take take people's attention away from the embarrassment of the Bay of Pigs. Uh, I also wonder what the panel would have to say about my long-held conviction that men wouldn't have gone to the moon by 1969 and may well not have gone yet if Kennedy hadn't been assassinated. Kennedy faced re-election the following year and there's no certainty he would have been re-elected. If he had been re-elected, he would have had to survive his second term. 
And the truly dreadful irony of his assassination is that he was very seriously ill and probably dying anyway. Uh, um, we really can't, t and if he had been re-elected, and if he had survived his first term, as we heard from Professor DeGroote, he was already beginning to have doubts about the Apollo program, and may well have strapped it himself. So I wonder what they think about that particular scenario, as we heard from Professor DeGroote. So little things, apparently little things like whether Shepard or Gagarin had made it into space first may have made a big difference. I think if Kennedy hadn't been assassinated, it would probably have made an enormous difference. I wonder what the panel think about that. Do you want to have a go, Reg? Well, the, uh, what, what impressed me, and what, one of the best things that happened in my lifetime, was that the ballistic missile race became, because of what Kennedy did, it became a space race, not a missile race. Uh, the Cold War uh, was very deep, very menacing uh, at that time. Uh, and what finally, what finally made a crack in the Cold War was Apollo Soyuz in 1975, when uh, a great hero of mine, uh, Alexei Leonov, a delightful man, and Tom Stafford got together. Things were very bad. Uh, the uh, the mission was almost cancelled, but Tom Stafford and uh, Alexei Leonov got together, and this was the first crack in the Cold War. And the result of that, I'm quite convinced that the way the ballistic missile race became a space race uh, it could well have saved us uh, from the um, from uh, an east-west war that Kennedy was so frightened of? I think I can answer that question by saying that you don't expect dogs to meow or pigs to bark. The human race is very diverse. It's divided into lots of types of people, which, you know, given a level area of savannah to go off and live, we'd have gone off and lived in different tribes and different, different things happen. So there's starship building man and there's, uh, you know, football watching man and there's political man. And Kennedy was a political man. He was absolutely political man, trained by his horrendous father, absolutely, to, to go for it, you know, whatever it was. You, you, how can you expect him to behave any differently? I, I can't see any worry in the question, you know, at all there. The, 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 um, I've never, <laughs> Forgotten a, a, a meeting once again, called by Alan Bond, uh, as part of the, the Daedalus project, where I think the, the whole Daedalus team gave a talk to Imperial College. It's way in the past, I can't remember. Alan calls it my Rape the Galaxy speech, where I started waving my arms about and talking about we're, we're starship building man, we're gonna, you know, go off across the galaxy. And, and, um, but of course, as reality takes on, reverting back to previous remarks, we now live in a time where it is, uh, you can see paths to do it and make a profit as well. And that is the only sure way to do it. Politics are so fickle. You know, so, uh, uh, I think that, uh, we have a safer way forward. It would have been nice, as I said, if the, uh, Cold War had, uh, taken turns for the worst for starship building man because you know there've been mars the asteroid belt everything you know there would have been and off we'd have been you see but as it happened we didn't i'd like to say also that a lot of people 
uh, have a religion, my religion, is uh, the Drake equation and the Fermi <coughs> paradox, because there is always a question of uh, uh, why haven't we been visited anyway, if it's so possible um, to, uh, to, to go off. I'm not going to bother to answer or progress that now, but... Uh, uh, you know, maybe uh, you need a Kennedy or you need something to, to to get things going. I don't know in the natural course of events how anybody would go into space unless they can see some universal and continuing benefit for doing it. So I can't blame Kennedy for anything except uh, some bloody good speeches. <laughs> well, Teddy Sorensen actually wrote them. But... But uh, doesn't matter. He was sensible enough. He knew how to deliver. He knew how to deliver them. No question. Uh, my own view on the on the interaction of the Cold War with uh, with the space race is uh, quite uh, significant. I I've even written a book about it. And if you want the full answer to what Professor De Groot was saying, I can only urge you to buy a copy of Spies in the Sky. <laughs> That is well done. Now, uh, I'm going to... Could I just add that I didn't really want the Cold War to go on, but I'll just say, if you wanted it to happen quick, that was only, the, only one of the few ways it would have happened. Okay. Uh, I'm, I'm going to use Chairman's prerogative here and interject not so much a question to the panel, but a question to the audience. And I'm, I'm, asking, I'm doing this because I know there's at least one member in the audience, and he's currently hiding from me, but um, we saw clips uh, this morning of Yuri Gagarin visiting Britain. And I wonder how many of you were actually part of the audience which saw Yuri Gagarin when he came. So we have one here and the, uh, we have two, three. Uh, now I, I also, as a supplementary question to that, um, I know that at least one of the three got within about three meters of him at one point. Um, which sounds like it might even be closer than Reg was at the press conference. But I, I can't, I'll let Reg answer on that one. Uh, does anybody else want to volunteer uh, beating the three meters of, of Dr. John Zarnecki? No. That, I understand, was at Highgate Cemetery, where presumably close to Karl Marx's uh, graveside. Yeah. Another iconic figure. Uh, Reg, uh, three meters, can you, can you beat three meters within Yuri Gagarin? Uh, Yes, I, I would think three metres uh, was very fair in the case of Gagarin because, of course, uh, he was always um, guarded by minders and uh, there was a translation problem. The man who got nearest uh, to Gagarin in Britain was our great friend, Captain Eric Winkle Brown. Uh, he was the one chap who managed to get 20 minutes of the one-to-one talk uh, with Gagarin, uh, they managed to wa- uh, waylay him and take him to the Admiralty, uh, where uh, uh, Eric Brown, who was then working for Naval Intelligence, was able to uh, quiz him about the uh, Soviet space program. But of course, he was surrounded even then by uh, a high-level interpreter and. Uh, 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 Eric Brown, who's a great friend of mine, told me afterwards uh, that uh, he didn't get much out of Gagarin, uh, and he was uh, baffled, although he speaks good German but not Russian. He was unable to tell 
how much Gagarin was saying and how much the interpreter was saying that Gagarin had said. Uh, but basically, what Gagarin told him uh, was that uh, he didn't do very much in space. He just did what he was told and enjoyed it. Uh, and that was it. That was the He was the man who got within touching distance of Gagarin and the only Englishman that I know who did. John. Perhaps I could just make a very brief comment about the uh, meeting at Highgate Cemetery. It, it was actually, from what I remember, because clearly I was very, very young, um, <laughs> I, I was at school just, I think, 500 yards away from, from Highgate Cemetery. The school was cancelled for the day because the great man was was coming to, in case people don't know, Karl Marx's grave was in Highgate Cemetery. So in those days, every visiting Russian dignitary uh, went to Highgate Cemetery. So school was cancelled, and from what I remember, very few of us actually went along. I don't know why I did, but a, a small group of us did. And because of the upcoming event, uh, 50th anniversary, um, I, I tried to make contact with some of the others, and, and I succeeded with one of them, um, and I think we went along together. And it turned out that he has become the dean of Lincoln Cathedral, so very high up in the church. So we were speculating that this event had affected both our lives. It had made him find God and made me find space, you know. Maybe that's a slight oversimplification. But um, it, from what I remember, it was a, quite a low-key affair. There were two or three policemen, but I don't remember any great security. And, you know, we were just... a. Uh, Three meters, maybe even less, Reg. Perhaps I did beat you. But, uh, I always thought that you had actually interviewed him, but uh, now I know better. So maybe this is one achievement that I've got over you. I don't know. Um, but and, and last comment is that some people might know there's a, a small organization called Yuri 50 with a website that is trying to gather together memories and, and stories and so on. So if, if anybody here... Um, did did uh, go to any of those Gagarin uh, visit events or knows anybody who does, get in touch with the website. I think it's Yuri50. YuriGagarin50.org. Okay. Thanks very much, John. Okay, back to the questions. Uh, let's go to the front row here. This gentleman got up before you. Sorry. Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you very much. My name's Gurbir Singh. I blog and write about astronomy and space. Um, first of all, just going back quickly to Eric Brown's um, comments, there is actually an interview that I recorded with Eric running on a laptop that you probably all walked past uh, shortly. One of the interesting things that came out of that uh, interview was, um, Reg is quite right, Eric was suspicious of getting true translations from the um, interpreter. So what he did actually, he got a a naval colleague who spoke Russian, but uh, incognito, he attended, there was five of them in the meeting, and they set up a visual signal between them to make sure that Eric was receiving the correct translations. Um, the only interesting thing that I thought came out of it was Eric asked him how he landed, and perhaps it was the privacy of the small group, no cameras, no journalists, and he did, in fact, uh, indicate that he ejected. Something he um, denied before and afterwards, but that was, that was quite interesting. My question, if I may. Um, 
It's about the early Soviet launch uh, capability. And um, 1961, there were in fact four manned space missions. The Soviet um, orbital missions, Gagarin and Titov, and two American suborbital, Shepard and Grissom. Given the high capability, lift capability of the Soviet launch vehicles, they really could have had a suborbital manned space mission well before 1960. Why do you think they didn't? Thank you for that question. I don't know if anybody feels they have an answer. Well, um, thanks, Raj. Why they? Uh, I think the the Russians did it as soon as they were ready. They did it a little bit before they were ready, uh, because uh, they were able to monitor NASA's open space program, um, and uh, in fact. Um, Werner von Braun was eager to go before, but of course um, uh, it is not generally appreciated uh, that the first um, American orbital launches with Glenn and co uh, that, uh, were in fact uh, the Gemini program and they were carried out by um, ti uh, Titan rockets. They were carried out by American military rockets uh, and not and Werner von Braun's rockets didn't come into use for manned space flight until Apollo flew um, so I think the the Americans were were pretty cautious uh, but they certainly could have got into space uh, they could have got men into space before Russia if the politicians hadn't been uh, so conservative uh if you if you look at the uh, you know the history books about particularly the life of Korolev and the whole thing, in actual fact, the space the, the reason was exactly as we said they weren't ready because they didn't have a spacecraft ready because basically I think it's the only word is conned. I mean uh, Korolev conned the entire Politburo into uh, you know he was hoping that they'd finally get him to Mars. I think he he uh, the the whole way. Everything was done in his design bureau, um, sort of shouted that. Anything that looked like it was going to be practical and therefore boring, uh, he farmed out. So missiles go to uh, Ukraine, you know, Yuzhnoi factory. Communication satellites, so we don't want them to put them out to Krasnoyask, you know, and so on and so on. And, uh, you know, what became Energia became, uh, you know, a, a, a manned spaceflight bureau basically and that's why and uh, uh, I, but nobody knew that until the flights of the R7 when he suggested that they put a satellite on and they nearly didn't agree he almost had to pull a fast one to get away so that's why they there was a gap because they, they, they were from a standing start to develop the spacecraft if you look at the history there's a marvellous film, was it called Space Race you know with him and Tom Brown that's brought out quite well there well, I don't think we've fully answered your question, but maybe we can, uh, we'll, we'll ponder it and see if we can come up with something yeah. better. Uh, I guess we've time for, uh, the young lady in the front had a question, and then I think we'll probably have to draw it to a close. CST, Mali Pereira. Just on the education aspects, I, I'm just curious to find out whether in Russia uh, they have a problem like we have, you know, where we don't have too many young people interested in space. 
whether there is, a, I don't know whether the panel can answer it or whether our colleagues uh, here present from uh, Russia can answer that. Uh, whether they have anything like um, space in their curriculum or do they have a problem where they have to find young children, uh, young kids these days interested in space like, uh, you know, when once upon a time they had more children, I think, inspired by everything that was happening in the decades gone by. Uh, that's the question. And one comment is, I'm sorry that Helen Sharman isn't here with us today. As are we. Uh, I, I don't know whether our, any of our panel feel they can comment on the Russian ability to attract students into STEM subjects. Uh, I think um, I'm probably not in a position to say very much, but um, I understand that it isn't as simple even in a country like Russia, which has a strong space program, as you might think, um, from conversations I've had with people in Russian education, it sounds like they also have difficulty persuading kids to be interested in science and technology and even to be interested in space. Um, perhaps before we ask a Russian for it's a true. comment, though, maybe I can um, just talk about one of my experiences because it's a day of reminiscences. And uh, having told you that I was too young to have witnessed the, um, the flight of Yuri Gagarin, what I do remember was I mentioned to you that I applied for the Juno program and got into the last... 15 or whatever it was, I think. And while I was in Moscow on one occasion, I was working on Spectrum X, which was a UK-Russian um, mission that um, we worked on for many years together. Uh, I was at VDNH, um, the big exhibition center, and stood for a long time looking at the capsule that carried Yuri Gagarin, thinking, could I possibly have the um, courage that he must have had to stay inside a capsule like that while being launched into space. So I found that hugely inspirational. And certainly exhibitions like that are obviously very inspiring for kids. And um, well, I wasn't a kid at the time. At least you know there were lots and lots of schools visiting and would, I'm sure, still be inspired by that. But for them, probably it must seem a bit like ancient history, I suppose. So maybe we have a Russian president who knows a little bit more about the education system in Russia and knows whether they have the same problems that we have. Concerning IBMP, we have the situation uh, which is normal uh, and familiar for all the uh, research institutions all over the Russia, because in the 90s there, were, there, there was very tremendous crisis, and therefore the, that generation, which was about 30s, that was absolutely smashed. Uh, from the uh, from the institutes because they want to want to search for for, for another uh, another job and it was a real crisis so it was a, a generation gap uh, we call it like uh, a camel with, with two you know figures like that so this gap is is this 90s that now situ now situation restores and now it is no more no longer the problem for IBMP for example to attract the the people from the who uh, finished, graduated from universities, and for my department it's absolutely no problem, and uh, the, 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 the same situation for majority of the other, of the other departments who can offer the salary uh, enough for uh, getting people in. The problem is that, uh, that it is not a problem to, to attract postgraduate, but the problem is to hold postgraduate after, after the postgraduate course. And it depends upon the, of course, uh, upon the management of the institute, the management of departments, which are in charge. Uh, so, but uh, nowadays, I, uh, we, we, 
so for IBMP, for example, this problem is uh, so, so far uh, solved for, let's say, for decade. I don't know what, what will be the next, but uh, nowadays it's uh, completely okay. So the, the average, uh, average uh, age of certain laboratories is flexible from 35 to 40. It's not bad. That's it. Okay, thank you very much. Well, I th thank you to... Uh, okay, we've got one one last question. Uh, although we we are out of time, but I'll, since you insist, I wanted to just make a, a very quick comment and say we've talking about inspiring and inspirational. I, I just want to say I found this the most inspiring and inspirational day uh, about uh, the legacy of Yuri Gagarin. I remember I'm old enough to remember uh, the excitement listening to the BBC. Uh, what was then the home service and hearing the sound of the first Sputnik and they played it over and over again. And I remember very clearly the, this uh, amazing uh, achievement of Yuri Gagarin and then the American Apollo program. And I was fortunate enough to, to get to know people like Jim Irwin and Buzz Aldrin from that program. But what I was thinking of was this. We're talking want to inspire young people. Well, the way I do it, I, I, I've been in the media for a long time, is to put people together. So, for example, we're just coming up to the Olympic Games. Now, I've got someone who won two bronze medals in the cycling in the 1948 Olympic Games, who I'm involving in the 2012 London Games, and it's very successful. Now, at the t Paul McCartney, the Beatles, the sound of the Beatles began shortly after all this, if we remember. And people remember that. And Paul McCartney still going around, doing his tours and packing them out. Surely to goodness, the, the British Space Agency and so on, can use the London 212, 212 Games, the Olympic Games. It's about endeavour, it's about achievement, it's about everything young people capture. Surely they can bring in something to do with the space programme, to bring in some of the people who are hopefully going to be um, astronauts of the future or even people that were astronauts who've been up in space or cosmonauts to inspire people. I think if you begin putting them together with something like the Olympic Games, I think personally you'll attract a huge amount of attention. Thank you very much. Thank you for that. I don't know whether anybody wants to respond to that. Uh, it, cer it certainly sounds like a clarion call for, for the, uh, the UK Space Agency and for other stakeholders in the sector over the over the course of the next uh, the next year, I guess, um, I'm I'm minded that there is for the first time this year there will be the first of what's intended to be annual UK space conferences. Uh, Dr. Curtis knows a little bit about it at the end there, uh, and uh, one hopes that that may provide a, a mechanism and a forum for improving the the reach out, if I can call it that, to young people to young people of all ages uh, to show them that space is still has its iconic moments, uh, which uh, is, is clear that we're 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 somewhat short of uh, at the present time in this country. I, I, it looks like that's going to be the final word. It seems a bit unfair that I got it, but uh, let's leave it at that. I wonder if you would first of all, could I ask you to join me in thanking the panelists for their work? Thank you.